is it not true? Should I believe that? I'm, people are wanting me to do this. Is that the right thing to do, or should I be doing something different? And according to Paul in Second Timothy, which we'll nail down as one of the featured uh, passages next week, the scripture given to us is actually inspired, literally breathed out by God, so that we can uh, use the scripture uh, and in both teaching correcting our thoughts and correcting behavior. You guys let me get all of this into the introduction, but no, it's not on there. So anybody is, you know, you cheated us. I should say something when I looked up and your phone was in your hand. You gotta yell, you gotta yell it out. Okay, so now we're recording. Um, all the people in the class at the time um, just allowed me to rattle on and not turn on the recording. So those of you who are listening to the recording, it's their fault that you did not get the first three minutes of introduction. But if you call me or email me, I will attempt to remember and or make up what I actually talked about. So with that said, why would you read the Gospels? Think back about what we covered. What do the Gospels give us? About the life and ministry of Jesus. Okay. Primarily the life and ministry of Jesus. And, and there's two categories, so somebody briefly tell me the difference and what they are and what's the difference. Okay, synoptics literally means to, to see together. So they record many of the similar events. Okay, and which books are those? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So when you're reading through the New Testament as Virtually every New Testament is organized. It's the first three. Okay? And then there's another one. John. John. And how is John different from the synoptics? It's like a, a conclusion from the, for the, uh, or it's the end, yeah, conclusion of the three uh, Gospels. Okay. It's like whatever May the, Maybe completion. Completion, yeah. uh, Because the three Gospels all end with the same place as John, basically. But John, written probably 30-some years later, John knew what was in the first three. He was also the last surviving apostle and probably was aware of that. And so he fills in some gaps, some things that the others do not cover. Most notably, the very first thing he does, which is... Uh, the prologue to John's Gospel, which is a very clear statement of what we call the incarnation, God becoming flesh in the form of the person, Jesus. And uh, that, that's simply not historically recorded anywhere else. So what else do you find as you're studying Jesus in the Gospel? I'm fishing for something specific. You mean how different they are? They're to different audiences, and so they well, emphasize different things. Yeah, not what I was looking for, but you're correct. And that is good to know because if you're looking, for example, for parables, you probably don't want to go to Mark. It'd be very disappointing. What book would you go to, by the way? Luke. That's Luke lists the majority of the parables. John adds a few, but 
still doesn't approach the number that Luke has. If you want to um, look into the story of the nativity, the birth of Jesus, which of the Gospels do you look into? Okay, Matthew and Luke. And they approach it a little bit differently. Luke's emphasis is more or less from the eyes of one person. Shepherd, no? Mary. Oh, Shepherd yeah, mentioned, but, yeah, from Mary. <clears throat> and again, there, there's a strong historical theory, which I personally adhere to, that Luke probably actually sat down and interviewed Mary numerous times, because while he was waiting for Paul to be seen um, in Syria, when he was under arrest there, um, Luke had very close access to Galilee, where Mary was living. Um, so it doesn't seem to be a big coincidence that we hear things in his gospel that the Spirit allowed Mary to communicate to Luke. What I was fishing for is, in the course of understanding about Jesus, one of the things that we get to read in the gospels are Jesus' teachings. So for example, a beautiful, beautiful set of passages uh, called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is in what book? I think it's in Matthew. Matthew. And it is more or less an introduction of Jesus' teaching. It was an early teaching time. It was a mass teaching time. It was a time when um, virtually everybody in Jewish society was there, including the Pharisees. So on the one hand, Jesus is calling them out. On the other hand, he's telling the rest of them, your righteousness needs to exceed theirs, which was an extraordinary statement because everybody thought they were the embodiment of righteousness. And they thought that mostly because the Pharisees told them they were. Because the Pharisees were legalists. They zeroed in on practicing the Mosaic law and would, would try to, to practice it you know, to the nth degree. Um, and Jesus basically called them on it and said, you know, you, you swallow a camel and or, swallow a camel and strain or choke on a gnat. You, you, you'll accomplish these amazing things trying to follow the law, and yet you miss the most simple principles. And then he illustrated it by showing people how to live by the spirit of the law, which does not contradict the law, but goes further. So for us today, those things become extraordinarily powerful. This, for example, is how we learn that it's not enough to not kill someone. If you're doing that in your mind, if in your heart you're rehearsing that, you're poisoning yourself, you're sinning. And that was revolutionary. But it's based in the Mosaic Law. Jesus is simply saying, this is the spirit of the law, so don't just look at the letter. We need to fulfill the spirit. So you're going to see a lot of teaching from Jesus himself, both in the context of interactions and in simple, uh, what, what we would consider a normal teaching setting like this, with people gathered around, sometimes very few people, sometimes thousands. Um, and we get a lot of Jesus teaching. In fact, almost, and I mean almost as in with the exception of a couple of sentences and the letters that he writes through John in the Revelation of John. All of Jesus' teaching from God. 
Book of Acts. What do you find in the Book of Acts? History of the church. Okay. A, a, a partial history. Let's let's be fair. So it is the Acts of what? The apostles. Realistically, which apostles? Yeah. Really zeroes in on Peter, John somewhat, uh, because Peter and John served together so closely in the early years, um, and then shifts to Saul, who was then converted to Christianity, and then his missionary journeys as he became the apostle to the Gentiles. So by the time the book of Acts ends, what is the primary I don't know how to word that without giving the answer away, so I'll just say it. The primary uh, DNA of the church, physically, was Gentile. It was no longer Jewish. The Jews always were part of the church. It was not until the Middle Ages when there were various persecutions against the Jews on behalf of those who called themselves Christians, I think there's doubt, um, that this juxtaposition of Judaism and Christianity that many believe in today was formed. Before that, everybody understood Judaism was the, the cradle of Christianity. So for a Jew to become a, a Christian, from a Christian perspective, was obvious and, and just intuitive. Of course they will. Now from a Jewish perspective, in the book of, book of Acts, well, now that's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> What's really embarrassing is I, from the number, I guarantee you, it's somebody wanting me to take out a specific credit card. There's a prefix that never gets used unless it's about trying to get me to buy a credit card. Oh, well, sorry about that. I cannot mute it, I think. Can I mute it, Mark? Or will it mute the mic? No, you should be able to mute the ringer. You should be able to. I'm, a, I'm afraid to, to be honest with you. So we'll just let it go. It'll probably ring again because, you know, it started. From a Jewish perspective, for one specific reason, in the book of Acts, we see the Jews beginning to pull away from Christianity and see it as a Gentile faith. And I just gave you a giant hint as the reason. Does anybody remember it? The circumcision? Well, it was circumcision had something to do with it. The law? Also something to do with it. <laughs> so you're you're walking around it. They believed you had to become Jewish before you could right. become Christian. The, the Jews wanted Gentiles to become Jews, which was always possible. Go back to the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess and was King David's great grandmother. So you know, it was never about DNA, it was about faith. But they wanted the Gentiles to own the faith, which was the law, and for men, circumcision, before they could become Christian. And Paul and the elders and apostles in the church in Jerusalem said, no, that's ridiculous. The, the law was to bring us to grace and help us understand grace, not to chain us so that we have to maintain uh, uh, this this legalistic commitment to fulfilling the Mosaic law. So, by the end of the Book of Acts, Christianity had become primarily a 
Gentile faith. When I say primarily, I'm talking in terms of numbers. And that simply continued throughout history. Today, even in the United States, most people believe that to become Christian or to be Christian means you, you can't possibly be Jewish and vice versa. Um, which, of course, has never been true. Okay. Last week we began with the letters of Paul and we talked about the churches. They were letters to churches. Or the point is the people in the churches. So today we're going to continue in Paul's letters. And uh, I think you all have. Okay. I, I remember. I'm late, but I remember. Um, you all have this handout. It is the same format. Um, not a big coincidence. Because today we're going to be talking about the prison letters. But before we dive in, once again, any questions about anything we've already covered or about specifically Paul's letters other than 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus? Because that's what's next week. That is correct. Yeah. It, it, well, I this mean, is I'm the sure prison letters, not letters to the churches. Oh, okay. So, yeah. And there is a particular reason, and it has to do with type prison letters, which we will hit in just a minute. Okay. Other questions? Okay, so Paul's prison letters are called that because um, each of these is believed to be written during the first imprisonment of Paul in Rome. Not any way close to his first imprisonment. By this time, Paul had been put in jail and put in prison in uh, numerous places all over the Mediterranean, uh, the most recent of which was for two years in um, uh, in Syria as he was whisked away from a near riot in the temple area uh, and then taken north into the Syria which and, and why by the way was he taken north into Syria does anybody know is Syria Israel no no and who was trying to kill him the Jews, the Jews. <laughs> so Maybe it'd be a good idea to get him away from the population where the leaders are trying to get him killed. Because it wasn't just anybody, it was the Sanhedrin rioting. And the Sanhedrin were, it was like our uh, president, uh, Supreme Court, and, uh, and legislature all rolled into one. And they were the ones that were after Antiochus. So when the Romans found out he was a Roman citizen, they whisked him away. They just got him out of the area altogether so that he would be safe. But at the same time, they wanted an explanation. What's going on here? And as we learn in the later part of that imprisonment, eh, what they're really waiting for was a bribe, which, of course, Paul wasn't about to give him. So he had been in prison for two years there. Then at the end of that, he says, I appeal to Caesar and was sent to Rome and spent approximately two years 
um, quote, in prison in Rome. Now, I say, quote, in prison. This was because he had appealed to Caesar. Any Roman citizen could do that. But imagine any American citizen saying, I appeal to the Supreme Court. Anytime you don't like what's about to happen, you don't like the setup of the jury or the judge or whatever, you say, I appeal to the Supreme Court, and you have immediate access to the Supreme Court. How long do you suppose your wait's going to be? Yeah. You're not getting in there the next day. So that, that's even with a, a much smaller population overall, it was the same dynamic. So, you know, the emperor was in no giant hurry to interview Paul. In fact, the reality is the emperor probably had no idea who this guy was, which is part of the reason both Luke and the Book of Acts were written. Uh, probably not for the emperor, but for his aides, who would have been doing the background research on the case. And because he had no idea, Paul was not seen as some horrific criminal, some, you know, top ten wanted. Um, that would change. Paul was to be in prison again in Rome a few years after his release. <coughs> that one ended with his beheading. And in that time, these pictures we have of this dank, dark dungeon and him chained to a Roman guard, I've heard sermons like this. You know, he's chained to the Roman guard, and if anything happens to him, the Roman guard becomes the one who's executed. Uh, partly true, um, with, with high-profile prisoners, there was that level of responsibility. He was not one of those. In all likelihood, Paul was living in a house or an apartment somewhere on relative house arrest, meaning you appeal to Caesar, Caesar doesn't really give a rip about you. So you just hang tight and wait. You're not going to do that on Caesar's dime. So you can figure out how to take care of your own needs. But the idea of you know the Praetorian Guard taking care of him and, and watching him high security and all of that, at this level, extremely unlikely the simple reason that they didn't know who he was and they didn't care. So, when we talk about prison letters, what we really mean is he was imprisoned, he was under arrest. And during that time, which probably stretched about two years, he wrote a number of letters, some of which we have. Uh, three of the ones that we have written during this time were to specific churches. Two of them churches that he planted. One in a city near one of the major churches he planted. So, you know, the people that he had led to the Lord, then moving to that city, planting a church themselves, bringing people to the Lord there. And one to Philemon. And Philemon was an individual, um, and this is the only letter we have of Paul written explicitly to an individual, explicitly about private matters. So we have three others written to individuals. We're going to talk about them next week. But they're called the pastoral letters because those three individuals were serving as surrogates of the apostle in uh, Ephesus and Crete. They had the authority of the apostle to make sure that things were going the way they needed to in those churches. 
So it was all about the churches still. Whereas Philemon, very personal about one specific personal situation. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, the author, of course, is Paul. So uh, Ephesians, by the way, Ephesians and Philippians, the two churches that Paul had planted, um, and then Colossians, the church near Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians and Colossians, both in uh, Asia Minor, what we would call uh, Turkey. Philippians, uh, those who lived in Philippi. Does anybody remember who Philippi is named after? We talked about it briefly last week. <laughs> yes. And his name is, when you look at Philippi, his name becomes pretty obvious if you just look for a minute. Philip. Philip. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, meant horse lover. Phil, Philepo, Ipo, horse, horse lover. So, you know, was that his proper name or did they give him that because he really loved horses and no one knows? But the city was actually a Roman colony um, named after Philip. Okay, um, so written by Paul, all of them written roughly 62, 63 AD. So um, 60 to 61 AD, he goes to Jerusalem, uh, gets involved in his altercation with the Sanhedrin, gets yanked out, taken up to Syria, spends two years there, appeals to Caesar, takes a voyage. The last part of the book of Acts is about the voyage. It closes without him arriving or, or settling in Rome. And so now we're talking about a time that is outside of what's actually recorded in Scripture. And so everything we know about this, we know from historical sources, not inspired sources, which is pretty different. Okay, uh, the purpose. In general, these letters were written to teach, correct, and support these new churches, or relatively new churches, um, and specific Christians, both Philemon and some specific individuals called out uh, or singled out in uh, the other three letters. Um, Ephesians and Colossians, uh, you see a pretty consistent effort to combat um, specific false teaching developing in Greek churches. We talked before about dualism. Does anybody remember dualism? What it is? Yeah, they would have said spirit and flesh because they would have uh, they would have considered this, for example, to be in the flesh part. So spirit and material is what we would call it. Um, and the Greeks believed dualistically that um, all existence is made up of these two things, spirit and uh, material world. The material world being bad, spirit being good. They are at odds. They will never be reconciled. Um, and that leads to two ways to handle life. Okay, So if Spirit is what life is really about, and the body, the flesh, the world that we live in is no big deal. What does that tell you about how to live? 
some people interpret that since the spirit was like the true person, they could do whatever they wanted. Okay. So, so, and that was actually the majority of the, of the dualists, uh, of these people who took the Greek philosophy and were trying to interject it into Christian faith. So spirit is what it's all about. Your spirit is what it's all about. Becoming like the fruit of the spirit, that's what it's all about. What you do with the body has got absolutely nothing to do with that. So you can do anything you want with the body. Don't get drunk. Doesn't matter. Sexual immorality. Doesn't matter. Violence. Doesn't matter. Because it's physical stuff. You know? Greed. Doesn't matter. Because it's physical. Uh, these, were, these, were, these were people called antinomian, and that literally means anti-law. Because the law had to do with this world. There's no law about the spirit. However, there was another reaction. Same teaching. Spirit, world, material world, antithesis can't get together. But there was another way of looking at life because of that. And it also crept in and probably stayed longer. In fact, we still see some in some ways where it influences the church today. Does anybody know what it is? I'm not trying to set you up. Well, no, the, the whole thing kind of, Gnosticism grew out of the whole thing, but that was the belief that specific knowledge about this and sometimes even specific words, there were kind of magic words. That, uh, that, that might because of the spirit being so elevated. Yeah, that's why I said it, it comes out of this dualism, absolutely. But what I'm, what I'm searching for is... Um, the belief that if you put the body down, you free the spirit. So there were many who believed that the more you beat the body, the more you tortured the body, the more you, you uh, put it down. You deny it. So they would, they would not just fast, they would literally almost starve themselves. They would not ever clean themselves. They would eat the, the smallest possible amount and drink the smallest possible amount in order to not die because, after all, suicide was frowned on. But other than that, then they're elevating the spirit by putting down the body. This worked its way into monasticism and really became the norm in monasticism and in many places is still today. There are countries where the height of spiritual expression is flagellation, for example, whipping yourself, uh, where people show their faith at Easter by literally being crucified, being nailed onto a cross, physically. And it's all about punishing the flesh so that the spirit can be freed. How do you spell monasticism? Monasticism? How do I spell it? Yeah, like monastery. Okay. The, the movement of separating from the world and, and just being together to have a, quote, holy life separate from the world, which is, I believe, 
immediately antithetical to Christ's teaching because we're told to serve the world, not pull away from it. But again, it comes not from Christian theology, it comes from Greek philosophy. So these two uh, churches, these two areas, were being already influenced by both uh, dualism generally, Gnosticism in particular, both ends of this, punish the body, don't worry, body can sin, do anything at once. So we have these extremes. And Paul begins to write in these letters about ways to live so that the spirit and the body are in harmony and you're living a holy life with both. But we don't really see in these letters the full-blown uh, attacks on those philosophies because those philosophies hadn't really sunk in and taken root the way they would say 30 years later when John's writing his letters and his gospel. So you see a lot more about this. Listen to the prologue of God, John's gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word became what's the word? Okay. Well we know it is Jesus but to the Greek, the word logos, it was conceptualization. And so the Greeks kind of capitalized logos and used that as a title for Jesus because he was the ultimate in wisdom, the ultimate in conceptualization, the ultimate in spirit. And John says, the word, the ultimate in spirit, became flesh. And that was an extraordinary statement and a clear put down on Gnosticism and dualism. Very clear statement. If you, would, if you were living in that time, you'd be going, whoa! <laughs> because it was such an obvious opening salvo against those who taught these things. You see the same thing in the Revelation of John where Jesus uh, condemns people for tolerating the teaching of those who would say uh, any behavior, particularly any sexual immorality, was fine. It was no problem. Again, where does that come from? The behavior uh, doesn't uh, influence the spirit, so do whatever you want. Is that making sense? Okay. Hmm? Well, again, you know, we, we have our own versions of things like this. Uh, somebody in ancient Rome or Greece, certainly Israel, coming to the United States would be absolutely flabbergasted by our insistence on the uh, supremacy of the individual. We see the individual in everything. They didn't. And, and they would just be scratching their heads like, where do you guys get this? The idea of individual, quote, freedom, which usually we define as do whatever you want to do. No one gets to tell you what to do. Again, in no culture at that time would that have been understood. They would have been thinking, this is the dumbest thing we've ever seen. Um, you know, every culture's got its own unique beliefs, values, etc. Like, I've heard that in a sermon, seriously. <laughs>
Okay. Moving on with the, the purpose. Philippians was considered a friendly letter. The reason for that is there is nowhere in the entire letter where Paul takes them to task for anything. It's the only letter he ever wrote to a church where he doesn't correct or chew them out for something. Straighten them out. Apparently, they weren't doing anything that needed to be straightened out in Philippi. So it is entirely positive, entirely encouragement. Um, Philemon is a very unique letter because it was written to a man named Philemon. I mean, come on. Had to see that one coming, right? And in it, Paul uh, addresses this man, who was apparently a fairly wealthy man. He was a slaveholder. He was a Christian. Um, he resided somewhere in, uh, I think it's thought to be in Asia Minor, uh, certainly not in Rome, because he's in Rome writing to him. And um, this slaveholder had a runaway slave. Um, the runaway slave's name, or nickname, was Useful. Mm -hmm. Useful. That's what you said. <laughs> okay. Now, in, in the scripture, it is Onesimus, which, if you listen, is a Latin, Latinized word, which means useful. useful. <laughs> so Paul's doing a word thing, which he does, by the way. If you read Paul's letters, uh, if you learn to read Greek and then you read Paul's letters in the Greek, Paul is constantly doing word names. Um, it, it was just part of, I don't know, maybe he picked it up as a kid and just never let go of it. But he writes to Philemon and says, you know, you're, you're such a cool guy. And, and you know, we, we, we've had such a history together. And I don't, I don't even want to point out the fact that, you know, you owe me your very eternal life for having brought you to Christ. But I've, I've come to this brother of ours named Onesimus and he has been useful to me but because I love you so much I'm going to send you because I know he'll be useful to you too. By the way, that could have been a death sentence because slaveholders in those days had 100% uh, rights over the slaves. This is not Jewish slavery where the Old Testament law prevailed and the slaves had rights. This is Roman or Greek. They had the rights. They were property. 100%. So Paul says, I'm sure he's going to be useful to you, but you know, I can see you you know, because of that whole you owe me your eternal life sort of thing. I can see you uh, sending him back to me as a brother, sending a brother to a brother because, you know, he's so useful. And there's this tone that is at once hilarious and incredible. The apostle, not saying, I'm the apostle, I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus, this is what you're going to do. Didn't do any such thing. He just said, yeah, you know, we know each other, and you kind of owe me. And then slips, of course, this big thing on him. And, uh, and this would be a good thing to do. We know nothing in Scripture about what he did. There's no 
letter from Onesimus to Paul saying, uh, I'm sorry, from uh, Philemon to Paul saying, you know what, you're right. So I freed him. He's on his way back to you. Hope you all have a great service of the Lord. Um, but tradition. Was he slave? Yeah, first. Onesimus. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was, was a runaway slave, slave bumped into Paul apparently in Rome. Which is where all those runaway slaves ended up because you could just blend into the background. So Paul's just trying to send him home. In order to have him free. So that Philemon could say, I free you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I release you. Absolutely. The, the slavery of the American South was modeled on the slavery of the Romans. So if you think about that history, that's pretty much the way it was there. So they had absolute rights, including the right to bestow freedom. Now they couldn't make them a citizen, although slaves who were now free could earn citizenship the same way anybody else could. There are various ways. You buy it, serve 20 years in the legions, you could save the emperor's life and make him really happy. Uh, you know, there's various ways to do it. But only a free person could earn that. So what we believe happened, because it just sounds so much better, is Philemon listening to Paul and saying, okay, you got me, you know, and releasing Onesimus to serve with Paul, serving the Lord. The fact of the matter is we have no idea. But I'll stay with that one. So that teaches us, what, what is that teaching us today? Other than Paul is manipulative? <laughs> but, yeah. What do you think? I pretty much just summarized the entire letter, by the way. Well, I think it's a commentary on um, equality within the Christian And I would agree with that. Uh, it also uh, fits with more specific teaching that Paul writes, where in a couple places he says there's no, no there's no more male or female because there was a great gender gap in terms of not only power but how uh, people were actually conceived. You know, women were seen as lesser human beings for the very simple fact that physically they were not as powerful, and that was true in many many ancient. Um, Paul says, no, no male, no female, no, no Greek, no barbarian. Uh, Greek culture was the ultimate culture for the entire Mediterranean. Um, so you've got the real high culture people, even if they were slaves, they were still highly cultured. And then you got the barbarians who were the uneducated masses who were gross and had no manners and couldn't appreciate art or philosophy. And no, it doesn't matter. That separation is no longer there. Jew or Gentile? This is the ex-Pharisee, huge, slave or free. And Paul himself reminds slave masters that they have a master 
and they are accountable to that master. Now the other thing it teaches us is that at least in that setting, Paul was not a social activist, nor was Jesus. Nowhere is any Christian in the first century quoted as trying to fight slavery. It simply wasn't on their agenda. And, and at, the, at, at the risk of sounding yeah, I'm going to sound bad anyway. Uh, of sounding bad. Um, that was too trivial. Paul said, by the way, to all slaves, if you can get free, great, do that. But in the meantime, obey your masters. Why? Because the gospel is way more important than that. This is all very temporary. And in eternity, what matters is our faith, our relationship with Jesus. So now we have a task, and we are not going to take our time and energy and divert it over into this uh, worldly political cause, no matter how important it is. We're going to focus on the task that God gave us, which is to spread the gospel. You see Jesus himself the same way. There are many, many things that today Christians focus on um, say sometimes to the detriment of the gospel. I know people who I, I see on Facebook countless posts on conservative causes, many of which I agree with, by the way. But I never hear them talking about faith. I never hear them talking about sin and repentance, and you can have eternal life. They believe that, but they're not saying that to anybody. And for Paul, that was everything. That was literally the purpose of his life. Spread the gospel so that more would respond and come into the kingdom. Okay. The background, uh, we've, we've actually talked about that quite a bit already. Uh, I'm, I'll let you read that paragraph, but we basically said everything in that. Um, content summary, Ephesians and Colossians follow this pattern talked about with Romans where half of it was what would be labeled doctrinal response or uh, teaching, systematic teaching, um, whereas the other half was the practical application of that teaching. I personally hate that, that taxonomy, the way it, that's expressed, because the implication is that the, quote, doctrinal stuff is not practical. I have a real hard time with that. Is it just the way that it's said then? Because the very thing that you do is teach us and then go with the question, so what? Right, and we want to nail down the so what. But if I never say so what, the teaching itself is still there, and each of you can do your own so what. Okay. So if I read, for example, Romans 7 and 8-1, we, we hit that last week talking about Romans 7 is where Paul just, just goes on this self-abasing tirade about how frustrated he is that what he wants to do he doesn't what he doesn't want to do he keeps finding himself doing this is the guy who's considered the most spiritual man in the world at the time and that's how he described his life and at the end of it just comes out with this 
exclamation, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He wasn't saying that about other people. He was saying it about himself. How many of you have ever struggled with guilt because you just keep doing the same thing, or for that matter, not doing what you need to be doing? Is that something anybody dealt with? So is it practical to hear Paul say this and to hear him end it with this blanket statement that says, yeah, that's a fight we're going to have to fight. But come back to this. There is no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. He didn't say because you conquered that and that doesn't describe you anymore. He said that does describe us. So again, the, the very theological I find to be very practical. Okay. Um, so, uh, Philippians, again, uh, joy and encouragement. The word joy and rejoice. Command, by the way, to have joy um, is repeatedly uh, emphasized in Philippians. And then, of course, Philemon, gentlemen and gentlemen, you owe me. So, you know, um, specific passages. Here's the fun part. So I thought tonight, you all have Bibles with you? I've probably done you a disservice by talking about these, but even tonight we'll probably have some time for this. There's a whole bunch on the back wall. Yes. There's a weird translation. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of the weird ones. If it's black and it's in this room, it's weird. Oh. ESV, English Standard oh. Version. It's actually the one that's used by most seminaries and Bible colleges today. Um, kind of a combination of NIV and NASB. Anybody want one? Sure. Nobody wants one. Okay. So, let's look at some of these passages. Um, in Ephesians, uh, Paul's prayer that they quote know Jesus. That's in Ephesians 1.17. Does anybody have Ephesians open yet? Yeah. 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 You do? That's amazing. What does that say? I mean, could you read it? That's like 117. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay. Paul says, this is what it's about, that God would, would give you wisdom and knowledge of him. What does that mean? By the way, knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Remember what we just talked about with the Greeks? Gnosticism was all about special knowledge. So, I mean, Paul used these words on purpose, but this is not the basic word for knowledge. So that word would be gnosis. Yeah, there we go. Which comes into English, the, the gamma, the kind of a G sound comes in as a K. And that's why all those poor kids have to learn that the word know, to know something, is kana but they don't just say K. Comes out of that, okay? But this isn't that word. This is this word. 
Well, actually, I started to write the verb. I apologize. The ending determines verb, noun, etc. Epigenosis. Now, those of you who've heard this teaching before, what's the difference? I, I'm going to guess to know, to know or to know intimately? Yes. It has to do with the depth, the level. So this is to know, to know about, to, to determine, to find something out, search something out. Okay? This is experiential knowledge. To know, is this in the way? I don't know how much you're going to want to see this anyway, but this is experiential knowledge. This is to know. Um, how many of you have heard the phrase out of the King James? To know in the biblical sense. What does that mean? To have a sexual relationship. Yeah. Adam knew Eve, and she bore a son. Okay? That's pretty much how that happens, right? The Hebrew word yada. Uh, basically had the same connotation as this word in Greek. And it was a knowledge of deep experience. It didn't have to be sexual. But because of the depth of experience, the, the sexual relationship would frequently be referred to uh, euphemistically that way. So how many of you know uh, about Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. Yes? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. How many of you know Donald Trump? Okay. How many of you know my wife, Donna? Okay. How many of you know Donna? Oh, yeah, what's that? What's that? I feel closer to her than many of my friends. Okay. So don't get caught up in the fact that it was used for. Uh, with sexual connotations is not always that. Clearly not that when it's referring to us and God. See? So yeah, friends get to know each other. You become close over the years. And this would be a word that would describe that. Paul does not wish for us simply to know about God. Paul wants us to know God. Um, I was once asked, 25, 30 years ago, um, and, it, and it actually sort of surprised me because <coughs> I'd never been asked questions. Um, it was a guy who grew up in one of the mainline denominations. And he said, I keep hearing you people, whoever you know, we were, uh, talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. Where exactly is that in the Bible? Well, where exactly is it in the Bible? Yeah. and many other places uh, we're about to enter into a sermon series this Sunday uh, called Remember it's second letter Peter wrote and the theme of remember the things that you've heard before the things that you've been taught comes up over and over because it's Peter actually saying I don't anticipate being around very much longer I need to know you remember these things as he's getting ready to die um, and one of the things that he talks about is true knowledge of God. And that's how it's translated in the New American Standard, oddly enough, in Peter. Not 
in Paul. Same translator, same word, same meaning. But somehow in Peter they call it true knowledge. The reason, by the way, is because Peter also in the same paragraph refers to knowledge. And so what they're trying to do is translators to show you these aren't the same words. There's a difference. Yeah. Okay, pretty important concept. Salvation by grace. Can anybody quote that? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace we are saved, not by works. By faith, not by works. Okay. You're, you're close. You got rattled. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Anybody have it? Well, by grace you have been saved. Through faith, yes. Okay. By grace you've been saved, which, by the way, is a horrible translation. What is grace? Greek word charis. Gift. By gift you have been saved. Okay? Okay, so Americans don't talk like that. But that's the right translation. Your salvation is a gift. Not by works. It is a gift. But how do you receive the gift? By faith. By or through the same prefix, both in English and in uh, Greek, has both meanings. So you're saved through faith. Faith is the way you receive the gift. That does not mean faith earns it for you. Does everybody understand that? You don't somehow merit salvation because you have faith. In fact, I would put a case that, <coughs> excuse me, the stronger your awareness of grace, the stronger your faith. It's the other way around. The more you understand what Jesus has done for you, the more you understand how much he's forgiven you, the stronger your faith. But if we don't really think that it's that big a deal, we don't stop and realize just exactly what he's done for us, then our faith tends to be perfunctory. Okay. Um, unity in the body. The fourth chapter, first 16 verses, um, Paul talks about the fact that we, we are one body. And this is a passage where he also talks about what we would call spiritual gifts. Um, that are given to us for that. Uh, we're not going to read every passage. Um, however, the next one we're going to get into a wee bit here. Um, mutual submission. And you notice I didn't say in what relationship. So mutual submission is taught where? Well, no. It's taught where? Where? 521. So somebody please read 521. Submitting to one another as a service to Christ. Okay. Well, yeah, it's half of a sentence. But in this, we hear that we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence, fear, respect for Christ. If we respect Christ, we submit to one another. That's what he just said. Right? Now, one another encompasses who? All of us. One another. <laughs> He's writing the letter to 
all the Christians in Ephesus. And, you know, by extension, all other Christians, because it was to be passed around so we could all learn from it. But it was addressed to all Christians in Ephesus. Right? Mm -hmm. All Christians in Ephesus. Then, the famous 522, which says, ladies, what? Wives submit to your husband. Yeah. But does it say that? Who among ye is reading from a New American Standard? Anybody? Okay. What does that physically look like? 522. Submit is probably in subject. Why wives be subject to your okay. husband? First of all, it uses the term be subject instead of submit, which is means the same thing. So we're okay with that. It's probably in the So, is that what it looks like? Yes. Seriously? Well, wives, comma, be subject to your own husband. Okay, but is that what it looks like? Is it bracketed or? It's italicized. Okay, so it does not look like that. It looks like this. Okay, so I'm a horrible <laughs> cursive writer. And that's B. Everybody understand, that's B. And if you don't like it, you're the one up here writing <laughs> immediately. So just understand that, okay? That's what it looks like if that's yeah. italics, right? So when the New American Standard translators put something in italics, what are they saying to you? It's not there. So why do they put it there? Clarity. Clarity. Mostly because they know that we're a bunch of worshipers of the verse and we're going to ignore 22 start with tw or 21 start with 22 and read it as wives to your own husbands and it's going to flummox us we're going to go wait a minute there's no verb we need a verb where's a verb where did they get the verb from 21 immediate context okay so here's what Paul is saying. I want you guys to submit to one another. Wives, to your own husbands. By the way, own, the, the word idios. It's the extreme possessive. In other words, to your husband, it does not say women submit to men. Or wives to all men or all husbands. To your own husband. Okay, Yours and no one else's. There's an interesting teaching on uh, monogamy when you look at it. But that aside, then he explains why. Okay? Now, he doesn't need to tell women how to submit. Why does he not need to tell women how to submit? Because they know how to submit. Yeah, because they were raised from the time they were infants <laughs> learning how to submit. Three different cultures, every one of them patriarchal. So that's no mystery. But in verse 525, he says something a little bit different. What does he say there? Husbands, love your wives. Husbands. Okay. By the way, wives and husbands, that's vocative. That means he's talking to them. So um, wives, you pay too much attention to the husband's part. It's kind of like reading his mail. That wasn't addressed to you. Mind your own business. Okay. Um, but 
husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, what's the organizing statement for this little outline in chapter 5? Or the second part of it, anyway. Verse 21. Submit to one another, wives to your own husbands, and explaining why. Why does he need to explain why? Because the same guy that says there's now no longer male or female. Wait a minute, there's no male or female. How come I have to submit to him? And Paul explains, okay? But Paul never says you submit to him, and it's one way. He says you're going to submit to one another. So when he comes to, to the husbands, he tells the husbands not to submit. He's already done that. Would you agree? Where are husbands told to submit? Verse 21. Verse 21. One another. It's all of us. No, instead, he tells them how. Because little boys were not raised from infancy learning how to submit. They were raised, particularly in the Roman culture, to learn how to dominate. That was the higher ideal. The Roman culture was based on domination. They didn't have to be smart. All they had to do was be able to defeat the smart ones, and then they could make the smart ones do whatever they wanted to for them, which is exactly what they did with Greece. Husbands needed to know how to submit. And the way they are to submit is agape love your wives. Uh, and agape means what? Well, what kind of, what does it mean? Don't use the word love. What? Doing whatever is best for us. Okay? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Right? Oh, that's nice and pleasant. Much better than my coarse green earlier. How did Christ give himself for the church? He died. Paul just said, in essence, husbands, here's how you submit to your wives. You do whatever is best for them, not yourself, until you're dead. The whole king of the castle thing just went flying out the window. And that's why this is so important. Now, by the way, he applies the same principles to parents and children. In the Roman world, Greek world not as much, but similar, parents basically, the father basically owned the child. A father could put the child out, kill the child, if he was displeased with it. He owned the child. Okay. Um, but Paul says that we're to submit to one another. So when he comes to fathers, and he says fathers, by the way, not parents. Because in those cultures, fathers were the primary parent, not mothers. That's different here. Um, I don't think anybody would believe that mothers are not supposed to do the things that he says to do. But he, he instructs the father in how to submit to the children, including, by the way, not exasperating them or provoking them so that they become angry. There's limits. And, he puts on. and then he tells the children to do the same. To obey. That's how they see it. And then he goes to masters and slaves. 
this mutual submission thing is to apply to all Christians, regardless of what worldly station you're in. And that was extraordinary. That was revolutionary. No other faith even approached that. But Paul said it straight out. Okay. And then in chapter 6, you have the famous armor of God, uh, breastplate of righteousness, and so forth. I uh, won't go through all of that, but I will point out that with one possible exception, and I'm not even sure there is an exception, every aspect of the armor of God is missing. The armor of God was not intended to turn us into a bunch of bloodthirsty mercenaries headed out for adventure and spiritual warfare. Uh, the armor of God was intended to keep us safe in our faith. Okay. Philippians. Paul's assurance to the Philippians. This is really cool and one that I personally draw on almost pretty much every day. Um, and I suspect some of you might. So Philippians 1 verse 4. I think this part goes through 6. Anybody got that? In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership with the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay. Did you hear that? Did you hear that last part of it? Read the be confident, being confident part again. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, I am absolutely confident of this. The, the phrase be confident is a very, very strong statement. Being confident. That the one who started working in you is going to finish it. God did not start working in you to drop it. Anybody here ever felt dropped? Or felt like, you know, everything was cruising along and all of a sudden, wham. You hit a boulder or you hit a blowout, and it's like, Lord, what happened? We're, everything's, everything's different now. But Paul says to the Philippians, I am absolutely sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will continue to carry it out. Present tense, <coughs> constantly be completed until the day of the Lord Jesus, which was usually a term used to refer to the second coming until the Lord comes back. Okay. The humility of Jesus, second chapter, where it talks about Jesus, um, in essence, putting aside the glory of deity and taking on this gross form that is us. And we're told that we're going to have the same attitude as he had. So, Philippians 2, first verse, right? Yeah, 2-1. Does anybody have that? Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Continue. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for their own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in, are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's an amazing statement. You listen to what he just said. Starts off telling us, you know, this is how you should focus, this is how you should think. But then he shifts and tells us why. And I think the key phrase is to have this attitude in yourself that was in Christ. In other words, this is what our Lord thought. This is how he saw things. So it is totally appropriate for us to be thinking the same way. Except we don't have near as far to go for the humility. He had to go from deity to us. We just have to go from us to us. It's a much shorter uh, trip. And then there is the famous positive outlook section in Philippians 4. Uh, somebody could read 4, 4 to 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. If you listen to it, Paul just did a four-pointer there. Okay. Rejoice. That's first, right? What's second? Well, I'm just lumping all the rejoices together. Okay. Do not be anxious. But well, don't be anxious, but instead, what do you feel the anxious vacuum? Prayer. Whatever you're anxious about, talk to God about that. If you keep being anxious, cool. You've got a guaranteed uh, ongoing conversation with God. Okay. Third part, keep your focus positive. Whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is noble. You know. Now, what do we think about? The problem. Yeah, whatever is a problem, whatever somebody stab me in the back, whatever the guy said that was really hurtful, you know, we tend to do exactly the opposite. And Paul's, it's like, you know, you're a steering wheel, where you focus your mind, you will go. So you focus on the garbage, you will go there. Focus on this stuff instead. And then he ends up with practice, and practice specifically by imitating him, following him, doing what he he got it. He's in there. He's done All right. Colossians. Um, arguments against Gnosticism in chapters 1 and 2. Um, 
Again, he doesn't label them with little headings. Uh, here's one against you, you Gnostics. Um, <laughs> but if you read it, you can hear a lot about knowing and what knowledge really is. And it's, it's not that different than the beginning of Ephesians. So if you read Ephesians and you read Colossians, what you're going to find is there is a similarity, almost a kind of synoptic similarity. Um, now, same guy wrote it approximately the same time to people who lived, eh, for us, half an hour, an hour drive away. So any real mystery why there's a similarity? Does it make sense to you that there would be similarity? Because Luke's pretty Pardon? Yeah. They're dealing with the same things. He's got the same answers. He's even writing at about the same time. There were those, in fact, who believed that the letters were actually written and delivered together. We have no actual knowledge of that, but could easily be. Um, then there's another passage in how many of you guys have passages in the scripture that uh, they're, they're frequently considered uh, life verses? I'm not sure I like that term. Uh, but a passage that just you constantly come back to your whole life. Just kind of guides you in life. I can think of about 12. In fact, you guys, if you thought about it, could probably think of those because I keep hammering on them for you. Uh, one of them is Colossians 3.17. Somebody want to read that? Remember, do you think in order to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Yeah. Which, by the way, is the end of the sentence. I mean, there's, there's stuff that came before that that's pretty important. But it doesn't change the meaning of it. Whatever you do, something you're saying, something that, that is an action, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You do that, everything's clear. You just you just got the roadmap to a perfect life. Not 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 all that easy necessarily, but then why do we teach the roadmap? Because we don't do that. <laughs> but it's nice to remind ourselves that that's what we're supposed to do, and in fact that we can. Yeah, and then Philemon and eight uh, eight two twenty one. That's not eight twenty one. There is no chapter in Philemon. There's just Philemon. It is one chapter. And 8 to 21 is basically that presentation of what I shared with you. I won't ask you to go read it because we've already dwelt on it for a fair amount. But um, not a bad thing to go home and read and just let it kind of sink in. Okay. Uh, we are five minutes early. I am absolutely willing to talk about Anything else related to these letters or what we've talked about already? But if you would like to take on five minutes early, I'm pretty sure I kept you five minutes late last time. So we can kind of even it out. I see you packing up and ready to go, so I think I just got my answer. <laughs> All right, y'all have a good night. Next week, we will look at the pastoral letters, which are the remaining letters of Paul, First and Second Timothy, and Thanks. Have a good night, guys.